0: WBCA radio is proud to present city talk where fascinating conversation is alive and well with your host, Boston radio veteran, Ken Meyer.
1: Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another edition of city talk. If you are a baseball fan and have spent some time in Cooperstown, New York at the national baseball hall of fame, I'm sure you admire its magnificence and its nostalgia feeling. And one of the reasons why, is because of the gentleman that we have as our guest for this hour tonight on City Talk. His name is Jeff Idelson, and he is the former president, public relations director of the Baseball Hall of Fame, former public relations director for the New York Yankees, and also the Boston Red Sox. Jeff, you've been around a while.
0: I guess I have. I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know if I should be out with the the trash, Ken, but uh, I have. (laughs) I don't think so,
1: um, and we do want to get to to grassroots, obviously. But but tell me about growing up in Massachusetts, where you went to college, what got you started with the Red Sox?
0: Well, I'm lucky, Ken, and that baseball was a part of my life from uh, early early on. I was uh, born into a, fa- a family that were diehard Red Sox fans and baseball fans. Not only my dad, but my mom too, and my grandparents and. Uh, just remember going to my first game at Fenway, uh, I think in either 1968 or 69. And uh, remember walking in the first time with my parents and my grandparents and just being blown away that I got to spend some time at at a place as big as Fenway Park. And just the expansiveness, the green grass, the, the feel, uh, just the aura it resonated as a five-year-old. And I still have lasting memories of that day. And you know, from there, I, I my dad taught me how to score games, and he would uh, bring me home le- uh, legal yellow pads from work where I'd make my own scorecards, and I'd listen to Ned Martin and Jim Wood and Ken Coleman on the radio, and uh, Joe Castiglione later, and keep score games. And from there, I got lucky because my best friend growing up from third grade, Larry Pike, also in uh, Newton, where we both grew up, he was a vendor at Fenway, so I became a vendor at Fenway Park, and I knew that I felt comfortable to ballpark. And that's where I wanted to be. And that really was the, uh, the jumping off point. I, w- I went to Connecticut College in New London, uh, majored in economics, but my heart was, was with baseball. And I knew that's what I wanted to do when I was going to get out of college.
1: And you wound up working, starting working for
0: the Red Sox. I did. I started with Boston five days after I graduated in 1986. Um I remember when I went into interview with the great Dick Bresciani, who was the PR chief at the time, uh, he, uh, uh, Dick O'Connell had brought him in, he had been at UMass, Dick was the general manager, and I remember interviewing with Bresch. and he said to me, if I asked you to tell me about Roger Moret, what could you tell me? And I said, <laughs> well, Dick, he went 14-3 and 3 in 1975, and, uh, you know, was stalwart in the rotation, and then, he, you know, he had the, found in a catatonic, state later in life in the Dominican Republic. And I guess that worked because he hired me as an intern. And so I started in 1986, couldn't have been any better. It was a beautiful year. And that was two years after you and I had worked together, Ken, where I interned at WBZ News uh, in 1984. Uh, But I knew from the first day that I was at Fenway that that's where I belonged. I belonged in baseball. It's what I loved. It's what mattered to me. Nothing else mattered to me, but baseball.
1: Baseball mattered to me too. Um my first ball game was a minor league game. I grew up in Rochester, New York when they were a farm club of the St. Louis Cardinals and my first game was in 1957. My dad took me and I was just awed by the by the spaciousness of the park and the sound of the crowd and I figured, well, if this park was good enough for Stan Musial, I guess it's good enough for me. So, <laughs> so I I love baseball as much as you but what made you move on? You you eventually moved on to New York um, to work for a guy named Steinbrenner. Uh, how did all that come about? And what good memories do you have of working for an organization like the Yankees?
0: Well, you know, it was never my intent to go to the Yankees. Like everybody up, everybody else in New England, you know, I grew up despising them. You know, Bucky Dent, <laughs> uh, Bucky Dent was the protagonist in my life at the age of thirteen. And uh, I wanted nothing to do with the Yankees. I couldn't stand them. But, you know, when you're just trying to work in baseball, you got to be, you know, you got you to be willing to do anything. And of all the teams I applied to, the one team that I got offered a, offered a, I got offered a chance with the Orioles and the Yankees. And the Oriole job evaporated and the Yankees were the job. And I decided to go and I didn't know what I was getting into. But what I soon realized, <laughs> Ken, was that I uh, was working for another incredibly uh, – Prestigious family-run organization. So, of course, at that time the Red Sox had uh, you know Gene Gene Yawkey running the team, and the Steinbrenners uh, you know ran the Yankees. And it was different. I mean, he this was a you know Steinbrenner was a a guy with very little patience, but his goal was to win. And for me, as a PR guy, getting to work in a media capital like New York was incredibly challenging. And so, I went there as the assistant PR director. Uh, after the 1988 season, and three months into my tenure, my boss resigned. And so uh, here I am now, I got named as the director of public relations, and I, here I am where I was looking for a job for a couple of years, to getting a gig with the Yankees, to then being the head of PR uh, at the age of 24. So things kind of progressed and took off from there, and I spent five years in the South Bronx. Uh, great, great memories of working with Gene Michael, was our general manager, uh, Buck schulter I worked with all five years I was there. He was an eye in the sky, third base coach, hitting coach and manager. I'm very close with Buck. And of course, a number of the players uh, I've stayed in touch with him and friendly with over the years. Don Mattingly is the manager in, my, in Miami. Jim Abbott, uh, I, I knew for, for quite some time. I was lucky enough to have him there. He was one of my favorites. And uh, you know, guys like Roberto Kelly. And then while I was there, uh, my just about my second to last year, we drafted this uh, skinny shortstop out of Kalamazoo Central High School named Derek Jeter. And uh, so I was there for uh, when we drafted Derek, and it came full circle for me as I inducted him into the Baseball Hall of Fame last summer. All right. That's a dream job. I would have loved to have had a job like that.
1: When did you go there?
0: Well, I was... Uh, Sailing along with the Yankees and things are good. And uh, I decided to make the leap in 1994. I got a call from Cooperstown and it wasn't going to be because of any great achievement. And uh, it was because they needed a body. They needed someone to be a PR guy. And so I, uh, I thought, geez, you know, I, I'm not a New Yorker. I don't love living in New York City. Central New York is a lot like rural New England. And I thought I would do that for a year and go to the Hall of Fame if they'd have me. I liked that idea. This was uh, uh, in 1994. And, uh, you know, one year turned into 26 years. And my first day on the job was uh, the day that Phil Rizzuto, Steve Carlton, and Leo Durocher were inducted into the Hall of Fame. And that was a great way to break my Cooperstown career in. Ah, uh, All
1: these great names, I'll tell you. I, Rizzuto is one of my favorites. I got the chance to interview him when I was in college and remembering all the people that were telling me I wasn't going to make it in radio. And here I am sitting in the press room, holding a microphone and talking to Phil Rizzuto. (laughs) And I kept thinking, boy, if they could see me right now. So he was, he was one of my favorites. And of course you're mentioning guys like Leo DeRocher. I got a chance to meet him as well. So, and the one thing that I used to like was, I mean, it only happened to me once, but you never knew from day to day, just like working at BZ, who was going to show up. And the day that one day when I was there, Mickey Mantle's kid came in, David. And and I'm wondering what, if any, experiences you had like that after being there for 26 years.
0: Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting to people that one of the interesting ones, Ken, it's interesting you say that when I reflect back early on in my tenure there, maybe 95. I'm walking through the museum one day. And I see these two guys sitting on a bench that were older gentlemen, maybe in their seventies. And I—I uh, I don't know—they just struck me as they might have been ball players. I mean, one guy had really big hands and just looked like a ball player, and the other guy looked like he could have been his friend or a ball player. So I go over and introduce myself to him, and he and was a guy named Harry Danning. And I don't know if you ever heard of Harry Danning, but he caught for the Giants, the New York Giants, and uh, he caught Carl Hubble, guys like yep. that. Yep, And he was with a guy named Bill Warmer. who <clears throat> was a right-handed relief pitcher for the Giants. And I developed a friendship and they just came to the museum. They didn't ask for anything. They didn't ask for free tickets. They were just there and enjoying it. And, uh, you know, that was the essence of people just showing up. Phil Jackson showed up once the basketball coach, Brantford Marsalis, the jazz musician guys would just show up all the time because Cooperstown is one of those, uh, you know, Cooperstown is the is baseball's vis- version of the Wizard of Oz. It's where you want to go. It's Oz.
1: The first time I went there, I was in the sixth grade in school and I went there later on. And it w- it's still a thrill just to be in Cooperstown, let alone going to the Hall of Fame Museum. Uh, because of today in the 2000s. Are people still interested in the in the old-time baseball players, or do they gravitate more toward guys that are inducted now?
0: Well, what tends to lure, lure people in, Ken, is who gets inducted. You know, you come to see your heroes by and large. You know, there, there are some people who love the history and are historians, but the lion's share of the attendance is driven by either a major milestone on the field where something the player used goes to Cooperstown. Uh, or somebody gets inducted. But once they're there, they start to realize how vast the history is, and there's an appreciation for, you know, the golden age of baseball in the 1950s or the house that Ruth built in the 20s and 30s, you know, going all the way back to the 19th century with the Cincinnati Red Stockings.
1: What, what are some of the... Uh, I, I heard or read somewhere about a, a, a bat that Babe Ruth used. I don't know if it was to hit his 60th home run, but but something came up with Babe Ruth that was rather recent. Uh is that right or am I fantasizing?
0: No, I think you're right. I think uh, you know, once in a while these Ruth pieces come up for now and then, and that's a testament. There's not there's a testament to how generous he was, Ken. He gave, you know, he back in that day, you didn't think about much of uh, you know, memorabilia. It was a different era, and he was great. And a lot of guys I know were great about sharing their stuff, and babe gave the babe gave away a lot of stuff. I'd say I'd say there are more signed baseballs than not signed baseballs by Babe Ruth in the 1920s and 30s. And the same with Bob Feller. I mean, he signed everything. And, you know, Ruth gave, gave a tremendous amount of his collection to the Hall of Fame. Whatever he had left at that point, 1939, ended up in Cooperstown along with Luke Gehrig's collection. But my favorite, my favorite Babe Ruth piece in the Hall of Fame that's there is in, uh, if you remember the year 1927, that's the year that Ruth hit 60 home runs. And in hitting 60 home runs, he out-homered the other seven American League teams, and he out-homered five of the eight National League teams. I mean, it's ridiculous how pro- prolific he was. And he, when he would homer Ken, he'd come back to the bench and he had a pen knife on the bench, a little pen, you know, a pocket knife. And he carved a little notch around the trademark, which is on the barrel of the bat, the Louisville Slugger trademark. And we have this bat in our collection from the 1927 season, the year that he hit 60 home runs. And this bat has 28 notches on it. So it's a poignant piece because A, he had 28 home runs with the bat. B, he left his imprint on it with these carvings. And C, it speaks to how dense the wood was back then that these bats didn't break.
1: Um, When I was growing up, and I was around 14, 15 years old, uh, in 1961, a guy named Roger Maris broke Babe Ruth's record. I remember where I was. I heard Phil Rizzuto broadcast it. Uh, um, what, what, if anything, do you have from that year from Maris, if anything at all?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the Maris home run chase was great and, uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, it was, uh, I feel bad for, for Roger because Mickey Mantle was so popular that there were people who were rooting against Roger, who was perhaps one of the nicest human beings ever to live. But, uh, he donated his bat after that, uh, uh, 61 home run season. And so we ended up, we've got Roos 60, we had ruse 60th, we had Maris the 61st and we had McGuire 70th and Sosa's 66th. And my God, I mean, they were just great about it, but, uh, uh, in addition, to, in addition to that bat, last year, Andy Strasburg, a dear friend of the Hall of Fame, a dear friend of mine, and probably the foremost uh, Roger Maris expert and fan in the world. Andy grew up in New York, was a Yankee fan. He went on to work for the Padres. He donated the jersey that Roger wore that day to the Baseball Hall of Fame.
1: Wow. I'll never forget that day, October 1st. I had a chance to interview Maris over the phone. When I first started working at at WBZ and I eventually met him uh, at Yankee Stadium in 1982 uh, after he had agreed to come back to old timers day, which I think for him was very difficult because of the way the fans treated him while he was still there. I think they expected him to have every year like that one.
0: Yeah, well, you know, we, we, we love our heroes and we expect the most out of them as people and as performers. And, uh, uh, you know, Maris was a hell of a player and he's a, he's a borderline Hall of Famer. You can certainly talk about him. But to, you know, replicate something that had never been done before isn't really fair either.
1: Are you are you pleased with the way the Baseball Hall of Fame selection committee works these days?
0: I am. I think that there's still a real, uh, you know, real difficulty of getting in there, Ken. I mean, it's still only one to one percent of those that have worn a uniform have a plaque, so it is exclusive. Uh, you know, the steroid era has been very problematic, as we know, uh, because we don't know who took steroids and who didn't, truthfully. And there's nothing uh, banning players who took steroids from making the Hall of Fame, but. The voters have taken the rules of character, and integrity and sportsmanship in the spirit in which they were developed, uh, which is to make sure the game is respected. But by and large, I think that the voting has been excellent over the course of time.
1: I feel bad for two guys like Roger Clements and Mark McGuire, because, of course, we all followed that that great season when when he hit his home runs and Barry Bonds eventually broke that record. And it looks like some of these guys will never get in. And I feel kind of bad about that.
0: Well, you know, the thing is, is is that their accomplishments are well documented um, in Cooperstown. uh, Mark McGuire in 1998 gave me everything he had after he broke uh, Maris's mark. Uh, He uh, he he, all of the stuff his bad, his jersey, his son's jersey. It's all in Cooperstown. So his story is told. Same with Roger. I mean, Roger was always generous at Hall of Fame. He made probably four trips up there while I was there. Uh, One of my favorite donations was in 1996, after his 20 his second 20 strikeout game, when I called the Red Sox the following day to see if we could get his cap. They said, "Oh, we've already he's already given us his cap and Bill Hasselman's mitt because he thinks that Bill, who caught him, should be part of the exhibit as well." And that was the generosity of, of Roger Clemens. And Barry Bonds, to that matter, I mean, all three of those guys' stories are told. uh, Whether or not they make it into Cooperstown is celebratory, but the fans who go to Cooperstown will be able to understand the impact they had on the game.
1: I'll tell you one guy that I wish was in it, because I know his daughter very well, and I don't understand why the Veterans Committee doesn't uh, get in somebody like a Mickey Vernon, who played for the Senators and the Red Sox and the Cleveland Indians. And I knew this guy. And a more charming person you 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 couldn't ask to meet.
0: He certainly had the longevity and the personality, uh, Ken. I mean, he—I believe he was a four-decade player, which is a very few guys who played in four decades. And uh, you know, yeah, that's 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 the that's the essence of the Hall of Fame is that when you look at who's in, Ken, it's very hard to say there's somebody on the inside who doesn't belong. But there are certainly guys on the outside you could make a case for. Mickey Vernon being one of them.
1: I, I heard a great story once. He was only thrown out of one ball game in his whole major league career. And it was before the game started. And he went up to the umpire. And I forgot who he, somebody had been thrown out the day before. And Mickey said, uh, you know what so-and-so said about you yesterday? And the umpire said, yeah. And Mickey said, well, I feel the same way. And they threw him out, <laughs> they threw him out of the game. I like that's that's a good story. I liked your stories like that. Now, when I went back to the Hall of Fame later on, they always had a custom of whenever there was a no-hitter, the pitcher would donate his cap.
0: Uh, when is that still true? Yeah, generally generally it's true. We get the cap or the spike, sometimes a glove comes, but you know, no hitters and cycles. Um, I think we can look at cycles too, or the Hall of Fame does be, they're just as rare as no hitters. And, uh, but yeah, they have uh, the the Hall of Fame has a baseball from every no hitter since 1940 uh, when they opened, the year after they opened.
1: Well, you know, and there's a recording of the uh, Hall of Fame ceremonies in 1939 when the baseball museum opened. Judge Landis is on it uh babe ruth is on it cy young uh it's a great recording to listen to if you have not heard it
0: oh yeah um, no i know it well part of probably my favorite you know when you look at the way speeches are today can and or listen to speeches it's amazing how many people get thanked and you know it's no longer just your family it's your friends it's the milkman i mean it's everybody in the world your agent and just they, they go on and on and on um you know they're usually poignant but they're lengthy in that 1939 induction ceremony when the first four classes were elected, you know, so they started electing players in 36, then they 37, 38, 39. So the museum opened in 39. They had 20 inductees. And, you know, Ruth was there, as you mentioned, and gave a great speech. But uh, my favorite was uh, Connie Mack gets up, uh, the great manager, and says something along the lines of, it's an honor to be here. Baseball is the world's greatest game. Thank you so much. And I'm like, wow that 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 was that was pretty that was that was pretty brief, and then Eddie <laughs> Collins gets up after him. You remember Eddie Collins is the guy that yep. scouted Bobby Door on the same trip as Ted Williams when he was in the PCL. Yep. Uh, Eddie Collins gets up and he says, "Mr. Max summed it up beautifully. Thank you. That's all he said."
1: <laughs> oh gosh, I don't. <laughs> I didn't remember hearing that, but that's <laughs> that's funny. I I like that. Let's talk about the current situation. Baseball has finally settled the lockout situation. But what about those years when they did strange things like extra inning games and having a man start the 10th inning on second base? and When they would play two ball games, even though they were day-night doubleheaders, they were only seven innings. As somebody who likes baseball like I do, this must have been very frustrating to you as a fan. It was me. I know that.
0: Yeah, it was frustrating, Ken, and I tried not to get too caught up in it because we were dealing with a much bigger issue in this country, being COVID. And I think baseball was just trying to figure out what the heck to do, uh, and and also using the the COVID era to maybe experiment a little bit. But you know, thankfully those are now gone. Uh, you know, without it the uh, a work a work agreement is set, those are out the door, and we go back to our nine inning uh, double headers and. Nobody's on second base unless you earn your way there. (laughs) you think Pete Rose
1: will ever get inducted?
0: Uh, I don't know. Ever is a a very long time, Ken. And, uh, you know, what the reality is, is that baseball's got a rule that says there's no gambling on baseball. And uh, he he broke that rule multiple times because he's an addict. And there's nothing shaming of that. It's just reality and he can't help himself and you know that's that's fine but it's incongruous with earning election to cooperstown it's really sad for the people in cooperstown that work at the hall of fame to have to explain why pete's not there but it's also pretty justified and uh you know he spent his career uh as a gambler in the game and was you know evicted from the game because of the gambling and uh I like Pete Rose as a player. There's no one I held in higher esteem in terms of ability, um, but he broke the cardinal rule, and the Baseball Hall of Fame's rules say you can't break that cardinal rule.
1: Yeah, I feel kind of. I talked to Ken Coleman about it too, and he he um, you know watched him play and broadcast in Cincinnati for a while, and he thinks he ought to be in. So I guess it's he may get in posthumously.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the great thing about the Hall of Fame is there are those arguments where if we didn't have these if we didn't have these arguments, and it's because we care. I mean, it's because we care as fans. Uh, so I, I uh, you know, I, I think there's a, uh, you know, good health to the debate of it all. And, uh, um, you know, it's what helps. It, what's, what's help, it helps with conversations and keeps the Hall of Fame in the spotlight.
1: I always like to figure that, uh, you know, even criminals get second chances. So <laughs> I would like to see him get in. I mean, his statistics are phenomenal.
0: Yeah. Pete Rose. Oh, I am you know, look, a hall of fame without Pete Rose and Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens is, yeah. is difficult. And, you know, but the question is, is where do you draw the line and does morality matter? Does, does anything matter anymore? Yeah. <laughs> well, The scope of
1: just ballplayers getting in has been enlarged, um, which I like. Broadcasters get in. uh, Two of my heroes as well, all three. When I was a kid, we used to get the Yankee games up in Rochester. And three guys that I worshipped when I was little and got to meet them all were Mel Allen, Red Barber, and Phil Rizzuto. And they all eventually got in. Mm Mm-hmm. Sure did, um, and all
0: deservedly so
1: oh yeah i <laughs> i i mean i just love the i i thought he was one of the best ball players turned broadcasters that that i've heard uh, well, in you know, all he these was, years
0: he was real you know he could he was relatable to fans he wasn't this like he was one of them he was one of us yeah what about ball clubs now are they as particular
1: do you think about picking broadcasters as ball uh, i mean ball players as broadcasters or do they just go for the well so-and-so played 15 years we'll give them a chance in the booth
0: i think they think about entertainment value and how, how they resonated as players and i mean i i think it's great to you know you know I, we had ned martin and jim wood they were they were awesome but i mean having like a jerry remy in the booth gives you a different perspective uh You know, that the the different players who uh, have their opportunity to really shine, they give us a firsthand knowledge, which we don't otherwise have. So I I commend the teams that find the right uh, broadcasters who played that really can convey what it's like, what's really happening, what it feels like. 26
1: years. If you have to go back and pick out some memories from those years, what would they be for you?
0: Oh, my goodness. There's so many, so many, so many fun memories. The great thing about being at the Hall of Fame, Ken, is that the, the, it was an open canvas because of its connection to culture in terms of what we could do, what we could promote, what was fun, what was real. And the home run chase in 1998 was pretty big. I really enjoyed that. Uh, the poignancy of the 2001 World Series after 9-11 is, it resonates with me. My first induction as president, when I got to induct Goose Gossage, who I worked with at the Yankees. And then the next year I got Jim Rice and Ricky Henderson, two other guys I worked with, one with the Red Sox and one with the Yankees. Those stand out as poignant moments, uh, celebrating the 10th anniversary of A League of the Roan, one of my favorite movies. Uh, the very first movie that I decided to promote in Cooper Sound was Pride of the Yankees. This is a good story. Uh, Pride of the Yankees. Uh, which was about uh, Lou Gehrig and the star of that film was a woman named Teresa Wright, who was an actress who had won an Oscar the year before in 1938 for Mrs. Miniver. And so I write Teresa Wright a letter asking her if we could show the movie and have her come up and speak to the audience and, you know, that kind of thing. And she calls me back and she's very polite. And she says, "Well, oh, hello, Mr. Idelson. I got your letter. It's so nice to talk to you. I'm not really a baseball fan, so I don't know what I could offer. And I explained, how important it would be for her perspective her perspective and she says to me will you, i have one question she says i have one question for you i said what is that she said will you be showing the original black and white version of the film or will you be showing the colorized version that turner broadcasting has done and can you know there's this there was this era where they started taking movies and 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 applying color to them to take them make them seem more relevant and I said, Teresa, we would be showing the black and white version because we're authentic and we're a museum. We would only do that. She said, right answer. I'll be there. She apparently, <laughs> hated, she apparently hated the way she had been depicted through technology. And she came up and was great.
1: You know, one of the first books that my dad got for me um, was a book called The Quiet Hero by Frank Graham.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: it was about Lou Gehrig. So that is is very poignant to me as well. And I just finished reading a book. Somebody found some of Lou Gehrig's first columns that that he wrote from one of the New York papers uh, up through the 1927 season. And it was interesting reading that stuff, Um, especially his admiration of Babe Ruth, uh, whom he praised uh, extensively. But then you wonder why, if any, there was a problem between these two guys
0: well there's very different personalities that's all i mean lou is such a straight shooter i mean he you know his mom was in his life um he was really proper and babe was different babe was uh babe was a seat of his pants kind of guy he was a lot of fun he you know he grew up in an orphanage with a different kind of structure and like to go out and carouse and have a good time so you know, you're, you're talking about two pretty disparate personalities, right? And, uh, you know, so I don't know if they didn't like each other, but they they definitely ran in different circles.
1: Yeah. Um, now, an obvious question. 26 years. That's a long time. Why did you decide to leave?
0: Well, you know, Ken, 26 years is a long time. But I, um, I had been there for... 12 is uh, the last 12 as president of the hall of fame. And I felt like um, it was time to let somebody else have the real opportunity and honor to sit in that chair. I had I had done pretty much everything I could and wanted to for the organization. Really proud of where we were. And uh, it was just time. It was time. And uh, 26 years is a long time. And I wanted to try something new and so the, the idea of founding Grassroots Baseball uh, was uh, where I went next, and uh, I have great memories of Cooperstown, and I'm still consulting with them today, still involved, so that hasn't gone away. And the gentleman who replaced me now is uh, a great leader, Josh Schraw, who will take that organization to the next level. All right. Now, tell
1: us about Grassroots and how it got started and what it is and what you're doing.
0: Well, Grassroots Baseball is a not-for-profit organization that uh, we found, I founded with a, part, a partner in 2019. Uh, photographer Jean Fruth, who was, uh, she's one of the preeminent sports photographers in the country, uh, had, was putting out a book called Grassroots Baseball Where Legends Begin, which was a photography book of all of her amateur work from around the globe. And she was putting this book into, uh, she wanted to develop this book and divide it up into chapters that were by regions and regions in the United, outside the United States and different areas and inside the United States. So a total of uh, 13 regions, or 15 regions rather. And so the idea that she had was to pair Hall of Famers who were from those regions with her pictures, So that if you opened up the Oakland chapter, you started with an essay from Ricky Henderson, for instance, about what it was like to grow up in Oakland. And then that's followed by pictures of kids. And so I helped Jean put that together. It's a phenomenal book. There are 15 Hall of Famers in it along with their images. And then she knew I was getting ready to retire from the Hall of Fame in 2019 and asked me if I would consider joining her and turning her book into a not-for-profit. So we developed grassroots baseball. It's a not-for-profit organization in 2019. And we promote the amateur game around the globe and give back in underprivileged communities by to try to grow the game by having clinics. And we came out of the gates fast in 2019. We decided to start with Route 66. And spent three years chronicling the game along Route 66 and that famous highway to connect Chicago to Santa Monica. And we have a book coming out next month, Grassroots Baseball Route 66. And we just announced last week that our next project for the next three years will be to promote uh, the role of girls and women in the game on and off the field around the globe. Have you ever been
1: approached or thought about writing a book yourself?
0: Um, I have not been approached or I've, I've given it a little bit of thought, but uh, I'm not, a, I'm a writing. I love writing, but I don't know that I'm that great of a writer,
1: <laughs> but maybe one day. All right. So if somebody goes now to the Baseball Hall of Fame, um, do they? what for you is, is something for somebody to look at? I mean, I, I, I know when I was there, I think they still show a World Series film every day. Um, or they did anyway. And, and what else do you think that they would enjoy looking at or just just enjoy everything?
0: <laughs> well, the great, the, what I like to say about the Hall of Fame, can uh, is that um, when you go to Cooperstown, if you've not been, you go there expecting to find the past and invariably you find your own past. And so, you know, you're a Boston guy. And if I had been this, if I had said to you, oh, you got to go see the Boston stuff, well, you would go in there, you would go into the museum, Ken, and immediately find information on, you know, the 33 33 inning game between the Red Wings and the Pawsocks. Or you might find something on on Earl Weaver or Stan Musual when they were in Rochester. So you're going to find your, you'll end up finding your own past, which is pretty spiritual. Uh, but, you know, things from Babe Ruth, Jackie Robinson, uh, the plaques of all the Hall of Famers, um, the things that have really taken the game and, and put it on the map and made it a part of Americana, they're all in Cooperstown. It's a 60,000 square foot museum, and it is the ultimate place, the ultimate baseball road trip. They still show a World Series every day sometimes world series films they have a great welcome film with 19 hall of famers in it talking who weave together a narrative about the game there's all kinds of technology throughout exhibits it's a beautiful place
1: you know it's funny you mentioned that 33 inning game i interviewed dan barry the guy that wrote the book about Mm -hmm. that game and i was home in rochester at the time it was easter weekend and i remember going to bed with the ball game on And I'd wake up at midnight and, hey, they're still playing ball. And I'd fall back asleep and wake up two or three hours later. And, my God, the game's still going on. I couldn't believe it. And when the game ended and and they resumed it, I don't think it took more than a half an hour and 45 minutes before it was all
0: over. Yeah, amazing. I mean, you think about who the two-third basemen were in that game. They're both in the Hall of Fame now, Wade Boggs and Cal Ripken. And uh, yeah, I mean, Wade just tells these amazing stories about how how insane it was, how late it was in the night. They built a fire in the dugout. It was so cold. I mean, it was four in the morning. I mean, it was quite a scene. The funniest story is when Luis
1: Aponte, who was a pitcher, went home and his wife wouldn't let him in the house because she didn't believe that the game was still going on. And she (laughs) thought he he had been out with another woman. It's so funny. I've heard that story. They eventually got it all straightened out. But there were so many ironies in that game. They almost didn't play it because they had a power failure, but they eventually got it fixed.
0: Yes, I know. All sorts of things. You never know what's going to happen when you go to a ball game.
1: (laughs) No, that's, that's very true. You never do, but listen, I want to thank you so much for for coming on the air with us. You've, you've been a great friend all these years. And uh, just to be able to sit down and, and talk with you and, and reminisce is a, is a thrill for me, and uh, I will always treasure that moment. And I want to thank you very much.
0: Oh, Ken, you gave me my break, buddy. 1984. Here we are, working at WBZ. I'm there all summer, interning with you. We, I remembered we'd walk out and we'd go around to that diner in Brighton and have lunch now and then. It was some like a like a like a train car kind of diner. And, uh, you know, for my last project there, you said to me, why don't you help me book the Woodstock show, the 19th, 19th the 15th anniversary Woodstock show. And, and uh, I just will always be grateful for your believing in a young kid and taking me under your wing.
1: Well, that's also because somebody believed in me as well. And uh, I always figured that if I could pay them back for doing that, uh, if that's what I was able to do with that with you, then I accomplished what I set out to do. Uh, you're, you're a good guy and the world is a better place because of your being around and, and being a part of sports.
0: Uh, it's very kind of you to say, and I feel the same way I do what you can. I'll look forward to the next time we visit.
1: <laughs> and the way things are going, it, it won't be long because I'm certainly willing to help and promote, uh, anything that you have with your, uh, website and the people that you work with, I'd be very happy to talk with them. So. Keep that in mind and uh, enjoy San Francisco and those cable cars. (laughs) I sure will. (laughs) Thanks, Ken. And that'll do it for this edition of City Talk.
0: Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.